Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Today's show, I have here over Zoom, uh, visiting, uh, not visiting, on Zoom, from Canada, uh, a Canadian pianist and composer, Martin Mayer. So thank you for being here with me, Martin. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, you are a, a very skilled musician uh, who, who does a lot of contemporary piano music, um, and and you you write all of your own stuff. Is that correct? It is. I was waiting for you to go on with the, you know, the embellishments of how Fanta. <laughs> ah. <laughs> it's like, no, go on, you know, go on. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I mean, I could. Yeah, I mean, I love your your website is really well done and very flashy and um, really fun and energetic, which is um, speaks to your music as well. Uh, so I mean, and then yeah. you then you see me on Zoom and you're disappointed. <laughs> no, it doesn't not... look like that in real life. <laughs> <laughs> No, not at all. Uh, but it's 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 so fun, and I, um, as someone who does play some piano, it's so much fun to see someone take it to such a different level. Um, you know, it's it's like wow, that is not at all how I was taught. <laughs> what I was taught. <laughs> um, so I love to just well, you know, usually when I do these interviews, I've been starting off by just finding out, and this was kind of um, because we started our podcast during the time of COVID, uh, yeah, I'd like to just find out what you're doing right now as a musician, uh, and, and as a composer, what are, you know, what is your day to day right now? Uh, because so much is different for a lot of people, um, or it yeah. was for a while. Yeah. And, and for me, it still is. I mean, uh, the whole thing of trying to get back on the road, trying to figure out concerts, trying to figure out tours. Um, the majority of my market is overseas, especially in Asia. And so trying to figure out sort of the logistics of, you know, are these countries ready to open up yet? Are venues ready to open up to audiences, whether it's, you know, local audiences or, or folks that are traveling to to see concerts? It's still really challenging, you know, to, to sort of put that together uh, a lot of these tours are sort of planned a year, year and a half in advance. Um, so, you know, right now we'd be looking at next fall to uh, next spring. And it's still really challenging to do that because uh, crop up and then they go down and um, all that sort of stuff. So for, for me, the last little while has been uh, sort of building a new show and and writing a lot of music and and coming up with, okay, so what I want this new show to look like, is it going to be a lot different than the, the one that I did? Um, is it going to be similar? You know, what do I want to do that, that allows me to sort of hone in on that? Uh, but it's very different because there isn't an end goal to work towards, right? It's not like, okay, there's a tour, you know, fall 2023, we're going to 60 cities, it's going to be this long and it's to be planned out. It's just kind of like, okay, I'm planning for something in the future, but I'm not sure quite when that's going to happen. And that is so different than what I've been used to over the past, you know, 20 years of my career. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the case for many musicians uh, still. But, uh, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. And, you know, definitely the higher level musicians like yourself who uh, rely on touring for their business. Um, And and so what do you I mean, what do you keep occupied with right now? Um, Well, I've I've definitely. A Netflix subscription more in the past <laughs> two years than I have ever in my life. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that I've watched that, uh, you know, you look at and go, where did this come from? You know, I've never seen this show or uh, there's there's just stuff that comes through. Um, the the other thing is just trying to find things that uh, that is going to inspire new types of music or new songs or things like that. So at least getting out, you know, going for walks and trying to be in nature in the fact that you know we live in a beautiful space and that you know our time on earth is limited so we got to you know take advantage of what's around us um today after you know we we finished the podcast i'm heading actually up to whistler um just outside of uh, some time to you know uh, be in those sort of natural surroundings other than that it's you know writing and creating projects i have a new album uh, that is done and ready to go. And now I'm working on trying to figure out, okay, do I want to release it now eight until I know that we can get this tour uh, finalized? Because, you know, the majority of the time in the past has been you write the album, you record the album, then you go and promote it. And with the promotion along with that are the concerts and the tour that people, mm-hmm. you know, they, they come and listen to the music or they've listened to the music and they want to hear you. But going back to the same thing with the tour, it's difficult to say, okay, I'm going to put this out now. And then all of a sudden we're hit with another wave. And the next thing you know, the tour is two years down the line. Mm -hmm. And people are going, well, I'd I'd love to hear, you know, some of your newer music. The album that just came out hasn't decayed in any sort of way. But it's interesting that the, the industry sort of feels like if it's a year old, or even if it's six months old, somehow it's not the the newest representation of of what you have, which I've always sort of struggled with. Because if you, you know turn on the radio um, and you hear a great Elton John song from the 1970s, you know that song has been around for you know some 50 years, and it stood the test of time. So why should it sure. make any any difference of whether you release it, you know now or or it's those little things in the industry that just yeah. kind of make me go like, you know, it's only year old, man. You're listening to stuff by Keith Jarrett or Chick Corea that is 40 yeah. years old. What does it matter whether it says copyright 2022 or. Yeah, that's yeah, a whole that... tangent that. Yeah, that no, that's off, a... off on. So you better a... stop me while I'm. Ahead. <laughs> that's a very good point. So it's true. But uh, maybe it's because um, you do produce music so regularly um, that people yeah. get used to that and, and get excited for that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point, though. But thank you for sharing what, what you're busy with. And, and uh, where did you say Whistler was again? Whistler is just outside of uh, Vancouver. So uh, north about an hour and a half. Um, it's a really great drive. Uh, the highway is 
Highway Highway 99, and and it's it's aptly named because we started, you know, the ocean, and as as you as you travel up, you're going um, through the mountains. But what's really great is that one of my favorite spots is as you're traveling up, as we're leaving Vancouver, the the highway, you know, is along the coast, so you can see the water and um, and all that stuff before we we head up in, into the mountain area. And I always just sort of love that. It's sort of like a reflection of this is what we're going away from and going into so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and we'll we'll come back to that uh that whistler topic in a little bit but uh where are some of the places you'd mentioned a couple countries but where are some of the places you would typically be playing if, if it was a normal year my main market uh is in asia primarily in china mm-hmm. um i've played in taiwan as well but uh, china has been my main market since about uh 2001 i was discovered and arts performing agency that sent me this really cool letter and I and I still have it framed in my studio here um, because it, it was the email that literally changed my life. I had done a um, a concert that I that I self-funded and self-produced because I wanted to, you know, uh, you know, to to go and do concerts in, in Canada and North America. And that part didn't happen. But what happened is I got this email from this uh, performing arts agency in China that said, uh, you know, we've been to your website, we've listened to your music, we'd love to invite you on a 16 city concert tour of China. And I showed it to my manager at the time. And I said, Well, what do you think of this? It sounds like one of those dear beneficiary, you know, you've won a million dollars, please send us your, um, please send us your information. And uh, he said at the time, Well, what's the uh, what's the harm in, you know, writing back if it's, uh, if it's phony, it won't go anywhere. And if it does, it could change your life. And sure enough, it did. You know, Hmm. we went back and forth a number of times. They said, we want to fly to Canada and see you in concert and then, uh, you know, do the paperwork and everything like that. And sure enough, all of it happened. And then six weeks later, we were on this on this tour that for me was just completely mind blowing. You know, there were places where they had ginormous billboards of, you know, me and and getting mobbed for autographs after and wow. you know people uh people at the hotel that i was staying at you know uh selling information of what room i'm in so two o'clock in the morning after a show i get a yeah. knock on the door and there's like four people that was like oh can i have your autograph and i'm like uh, yeah, uh it, it was just so so completely mind-boggling and that was my first tour experience and then you know, you go from that and you come back to Canada and, you know, you're walking down Robson Street, which is one of the main shopping districts here in, in Vancouver, and nobody knows who you are. Uh, mm-hmm. And and now when I when I still go back there, there are still places where I can't go without, you know, the ball cap and the sunglasses mm-hmm. because people will recognize me and, you know, it'll it'll, wow. um, it'll draw attention. So it, it's really, really sort of this cool night and day, you know, twilight zone type of thing. You know, you go into the airplane and, you know take off almost into a a different reality. But it's really cool because, um, you know, when I perform here in Canada, either show because they're friends or, um, you know, we work together or people that that are interested to to discover discover a different artist there they will see the show because either I'm Canadian or they love piano or both. Mm. Um, And there's a lot of parents that will take their kids that, you know, they want to show them if you continue practicing and if you do what your teacher says you're supposed to do, i.e. practice, you know, two hours a day, um, this is this is what you can do. And so it's it, uh, experience with the audience because not that it's not sincere here, but it's just such a different 
um, it's such a different experience. Um, it, it's difficult to, to to describe. The the only way that I can, um, yeah, it, it's just so difficult to describe that that feeling when you you walk out and um, people are just so genuinely uh, happy that you're that you're there, that you've made the time to come and perform for them. Um, whereas here, it feels like the other way around that the audience has taken the time to come and. There, there. It's the opposite. They're appreciative for the fact that you've come to to perform for them. So that that always mm -hmm. has a. Um, it, it's always interesting how different audiences are in different places that you that you perform. Right, the the audience in Asia is different from one you know in my native Czech Republic where I've performed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just it's always interesting to see what what the interpretation of the music is and just on a small tangent that's what i really love about instrumental music is that i can say this is the theme this is what i'm writing this is what the story but it doesn't have lyrics to it right so the the lyrics always tell the story and it'll say um you know it'll tell the story as it is with a song like whistler which you know you'll be playing uh, later in the podcast um I know exactly what movements represents, but to you, when when you listen to it and you can look up pictures of Whistler on the internet, um, it it might give you a different, uh, it has a different feeling or a different representation or a different. What am I trying to say? My story might not align with yours. Mm -hmm. It's open to interpretation in terms of how you see it and how you hear yeah. it, and I think that's that's really cool. And the other thing that I really love about it, too, is that on those tours, um, what I've done before is taken popular Chinese songs and rearranged them in a North American style with our, our type of arrangements. Smart. right? And so they will see it. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I want to see how he plays it. And then all of a sudden you see the that sort of like the it lights up in their brain of like, oh, my God, he's playing the song that you know, I know from school and my grandma taught me and it's generational and it's one of those, uh, we call them the music, right? Because it's so ingrained in their culture that it is, um, it is such an honor to play that type of music and to get that response mm -hmm. from the audience where they go, oh my God, he's playing this song that I love, but mm -hmm. it's different than I know it. And so you're connecting in a, in a completely different way with the yeah. audience. And so having that um, is so much more interesting do that with instrumental music you can't do that with um with songs that have lyrics yeah that's fascinating so you've really embraced the chinese um audience and culture and everything so mm -hmm. i mean what do you think it was about your music that spoke to them in that area of the world as opposed to other parts um that's a good question i would say you know in north america um you know guitar is key pop music is key right uh, we've seen shows like American Idol and and those types of shows where it's you rarely. See, I mean, you know the the Got Talent shows they'll they'll sometimes have, you know, somebody that uh, that is a piano prodigy and you know they they blow the judges away, but you don't see them continue on. There is something about piano music in both in Asia and in Europe that it it has a certain status that I don't think has crossed over um into into north america look at somebody like david foster david foster born in canada um you know pianist by by trade started working as a producer 
now is primarily known as a producer for, you know, all the all the sort of big hit artists. Um, Richard Clayderman is a French pianist that has been around for 40 years. Um, in the Guinness Book of World Records, he is considered the uh, the most successful pianist of all time in terms of records sold and all that sort of stuff. Uh, continuous sellout shows in in Asia. The majority of people here don't know him. You know, he was hugely mm -hmm. popular in the in the 80s and 90s, and you know, he did he did performances in um, in the states mostly, and has only recently started uh, doing uh, concerts here in Canada. But the majority of people that that will go, and when I go. Um, the, the majority of the audience is, is Asian in nature. Um, and so there's some piano music that is uh, hugely popular in Europe and in Asia that, that doesn't transcend here. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. You know, Frank Mills, who's another Canadian pianist, you know, music box dancer was huge in the 80s and 90s, um, but is, is somebody that is now, you know, isn't, isn't touring anymore. So I don't know specifically what it is about you know, piano music that it, that is attractive, but, you know, Hey, it's, you know, it's great. I can, I can do my work here. I can do mm -hmm. writing of the music and recording it and, and then bring the show there and, you know, uh, come home and walk on the streets and nobody has, nobody has an idea of who <laughs> I am. So if I have a bad day and I melt down in public, <laughs> you know, it, all, it doesn't, it doesn't show up on TMZ. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I thought of one more question I'd like to ask you mm. about that topic and then uh, more or less, and then I'll get to your story a little bit more. Um, but I, you know, one of the things that I've observed uh, doing e events in the U.S. and, in, you know, particularly in the Wisconsin area is that a lot of venues, especially newer venues, um, really don't always uh, bring in a piano yeah. to have on site, um, you know, because it's just it, the upkeep is expensive. Mm -hmm. The instrument is a, a huge expense yeah. and um in, and then just you know obviously tuning and etc and um and so many keyboardists uh, have their own keyboard if they use that so um i don't know i mean do you see that as a, a trend as well at all or um i mean you're definitely you're generally in more concert hall type spaces that would have the 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 full piano um not always. But not always, really. No. What, and, what have you seen? Two. I mean, you know, uh, if I compare the first tour that I did in two thousand one to to now, it's you know completely night and day in terms mm -hmm. of how how those things have changed. Um, you know, China changed a lot in and around the and 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 how that opened the country to uh, to performers from from around the world. The the concert halls now are beautiful. Um, you know, a lot of them do have either a Steinway or a Yamaha or, you know, Fazioli. Um, the majority of the halls will have a, a nine foot Steinway and it will have a dedicated piano room that is, that is, you know, treated with, um, you know, temperature controls and, and things like that. And then, then you have the spaces that, that don't have that, um, because, primarily focused towards that type of music mm -hmm. but they do have that instrument available and you know then all of a sudden you run into the problem of well it, it's hot outside and you know you bring you bring the piano on stage with warm lights and you turn on the air conditioning and all of a sudden you know it, it goes out of tune when it's only mm -hmm. been tuned you know a couple mm -hmm. hours ago um having you know these types of instruments available is uh is hugely important for 
artists such as ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're always there or that they're always shape. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I'm unfortunately not of the luxury to, you know, bring my own piano everywhere <laughs> I go. Um, I don't even know if, you know, although I would say that I think Elton still, you know, tours with his own piano. And, and that's certainly, you know, for a show that size, you know, they go, hey, our stage is uh, 50 times larger than the piano. What do we care whether we're, you know, right. taking another instrument with us? But you know, he's very particular about the type of instrument that, that he plays on. So, so that's important, um, for do these types of performances, whether it's here or whether it's abroad, um, it's very important to know, uh, what kind of piano is it? What's the make and the model of it? How old is it? How well is it maintained and and that type of thing? So that if there's something that I see, you know, it's a 25-year-old piano. This is this is the make. It hasn't really been upkept. They don't have a temperature-controlled room. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can we get you know Fazioli uh, to sponsor a piano in that in that market? Mm-hmm. You know, we can go and and meet with the dealer and and do a masterclass or something like that, mm-hmm. so that there's an um, you know sort of a back and forth. And um, then uh, then and then that's easy you know enough to do because the piano. The instrument is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody had suggested a while ago, well, how about we get a grand piano shell? Um, and for those who aren't familiar with that uh, term, a grand piano shell is basically exactly what it sounds like. But it's you're not taking an existing instrument. You're, you're building a shell so that it, it basically looks like a grand piano. And what you're doing is you're putting in a digital piano mm-hmm. um, at the at the front of it and connecting it so that it looks like a grand piano, but it's actually a digital piano that, you know, you can you can carry around. And, you know, to a certain extent that that can um, because then you don't have to worry about tuning, you don't have to worry about microphones and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. But then you lose the charm of the instrument, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with keyboards and samples, and um, there's some of the greatest samples out there these days. What I really love is the one from um, Abbey Road Studios. It's called Garden CFX. And what they did was they took a Yamaha CFX, which is the concert size nine foot grand piano, into Abbey Road Studios and put all their amazing microphones and the preamp warmth converters and everything like that. And they recorded it, and it's amazing. You know, I'll go mm-hmm. and I'll play it here in the studio, and you just put on the headphones or even through the speakers, and and you hear the little sounds of even just the felt, you know, coming off of the strings, as you wow. And so that's really cool, but it doesn't it doesn't have that charm of like when you sit down, you know, in front of a piano that is that size, right? Yeah, absolutely. There, and, and you feel it, you play it differently. There's, I mean, it's, it's just, it, unless I, and I think, um, unless you're really a pianist, you don't necessarily understand sometimes, but, uh, but the audience, I, if, if there is, um, a well-trained audience, they can hear it too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, but yeah, it, it's, I was curious how you responded to that, um, that shell question with, <laughs> um, and how you responded. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I bet you get that occasionally. So, um, well, and for, for you as somebody who plays French horn, mm-hmm. um, I would imagine that if you sit in front of something like an East West, you know, Hollywood, uh, Hollywood orchestra, sound, mm-hmm. put up the French horn patch, 
sure you can play it to make it sound probably more authentic than than I can as a piano player, but you can still hear that it's digital, that it's you know yes. something that's been sampled oh, as yeah. opposed to you know sitting in a room with that instrument. Oh yes, yeah. I have yet to find a good uh, sample of a horn. <laughs> really? <laughs> that yeah. I, I mean yeah, that really imitates the the live sound um, mm-hmm. the same way. It's just uh, it's something that you almost have to to feel and uh, feel around you as opposed to straight ahead at you. So yeah. um, and and you know similarly with other other acoustic instruments. So um, but anyways, I want to get back to um, asking you a little bit more about your story. And uh, so you are you were born in the Czech Republic. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, how you got your start as a musician and, and what you did when you were younger? Sure. Born in the Czech Republic, uh, came to Canada in 1989. Um, and my start in piano sort of has a has a bit of a different story. I started a lot later than most most people did. Um, you know, most people will start around sort of five or six. It'll be the parents that'll be like, hey, mm-hmm. I want you to play me, the, the way that that started was I was in elementary school and in in one of the music classes, the 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 accompanist was playing the piano and, and I was really sort of enamored with with the the sound that she was coaxing from this instrument. And so one of the afterwards, I went up to her and I said, I really love that song. You know, could I could I possibly get a copy of the sheet music so that I can I could learn it? And that was my first lesson in copyright. <laughs> and what you can or can't do. And she said, you know, I, I can't give you a copy of this because, you know, for copyright reasons, but come see me at the end of the weekend and I can I can show you what that what that piece is all about. And at the end of the week she ended up giving me a manila folder that that had the music in it and she said, You didn't get this from me. And it was a song that I that I went and and learned and um I think my I was interested in piano and I was interested in music. And so they signed me up for piano lessons and theory and all that sort of stuff. I did four grades in, in my first year. Uh, that's how, how, that's how quickly my uh, teacher progressed me because she saw that, you know, I was so inclined mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the way, I realized that even though I was classically trained, I wasn't going to be a classical musician. Um, that it wasn't, that it wasn't for me. That there isn't anything wrong with it. It was just not the type of music that I was that I was going to uh, naturally be into. A lot of John Williams, David Foster, uh, Yanni, John Tesh. Mm-hmm. You know those types of guys. Richard Claderman, the mm-hmm. the gentleman that we talked about before. And um, at some point went, hey, I th- I think I want to see what writing my own you know music is is going to be like. It it just kind of you know, progress and snowballed from there. My first uh, song that I wrote was picked up by the uh, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for a commercial. Um, and then from there, you know, just started writing more and started watching some of these PBS specials that had, you know, um, Yanni at the Acropolis, uh, John Tesh live at Red Rocks mm-hmm. and went, that's my type of music. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the sort of story I want to tell with, with my music. And um, I had a subscription to keyboard. I remember reading an A&R article that said, if you're waiting for record companies to knock on your door, you're going to be an old man with, you know, Cheerios <laughs> on the side and your dog licking, licking your slipper um, before anybody pays attention. So you have to do something that that's going to jump out and catch these people. Um, and so I went and said, okay, so I'm going to try to do one of these concerts. You know, obviously I didn't have, 
you know, Red Rocks or um, Acropolis type of money. But I went and got a $35,000 loan, fully uh, co-signed because I went into the bank and I said, I want to do a concert with my own orchestra, film it, record it, you know, uh, put together a, a, you know, a TV special for that and uh, put out a record. And they said, great, how are you going to sell it? And I went, I have no idea. You know, <laughs> I, I know how to do the music stuff. I know how to put this together, but I had no idea what the plan for it was after. And so I went and did it. Uh, you know, the, the show was a great success. Uh, filmed it, recorded it, did all the uh, did all the post-production work. The, the filming component of it didn't work because I, at the time, didn't understand that theatrical lighting and what you needed for television mm. were two completely different things. So even though we even though we filmed it, the um, the the filmed aspect of it wasn't usable, but the the live recording was, and it was that recording that got me. Uh, two things. One, it was my first um, award nomination for Outstanding Instrumental Album um, from the Western Canadian Music Awards. And the other was the uh, it attracted the attention of an overseas um, agency in China that had listened to the music and said, oh, this will be popular mm. with us, you know, in, in this market. And so the the original goal that I had with that concert in terms of outdoors in Canada and the U.S., that didn't happen. But you know, you sometimes when you throw the rock into the pond, it the the ripple goes, mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of places where you don't expect. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's that's how it all started. And that's how the whole thing went from that one piece of sheet music to the one piece, the first piece of music that goes on TV. And then the first, you know, record that gets the first nomination and the and the first tour. And so mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to look back on that now. Um, you know, what was the what was the time frame with all of that? Like, when did you when did that first? Um, piece... Yeah, so I was eleven when I started uh, piano. The first piece I got picked up, I was uh, sixteen. I was eighteen when I did the concert. Nineteen when I released the album, and um, twenty one when when the um, when the first tour happened. Wow! Now I'm completely. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing people can't see this on on zoom they'll be like yeah you look better on the website man <laughs> <laughs> not at all no you definitely have your your same youthful charm so yeah oh, thank you you're yeah. so sweet <laughs> yeah you're only as young as you act that's what i like to think right <laughs> well and there's there's something i think that um and i'd be curious to see what, what you think of this is that i think there's a certain um youthfulness in music that oh, yeah. doesn't really go away um there's music that i that i hear even you know when i was listening to, to korea for a number of years mm -hmm. before he um passed away you know i was listening to the newer stuff that he was doing and i went you know this still sounds like you know you can you just hear it the minute that it comes on or like the that uh, that i really love is bob james and foreplay mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. You know that the minute that that riff hits, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, foreplay or it's Bob James. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's like, wait a minute, is this Bob James or is it foreplay? Like, which one am I listening to? Right. There's that there's that sort of um, style to it. And I remember, you know, one of the interesting things that when I did that concert, um, I was in, um, in my my studies for uh, for piano and for composition and arranging mm -hmm. in my uh, composition teacher came to came to the show and then he sort of gave me a, he said if you want I can give you some feedback on the show or you know not if you don't and I was like yeah yeah sure 
And one of the things that I still remember to this day is he said, you know, stylistically, all of the songs were very similar to each other. And I went, he said, well, no, but I mean, you have, you know, you're sort of playing in that new age, new instrumental you know, world jazz, you know, that's the thing with my music. It doesn't really have, you know, an easy label, right? Um, it was new age in the, in the, in the nineties. Now it's a classical crossover and, you know, contemporary instrumental and <laughs> whatever you want to call it. It's this song is rock and this one is jazz and this one is a Latin tune and this one is a slow ballad and, you know, that, that type yeah. of thing. And the genre, so was, yeah, yeah, the genre is Martin Mayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The genre is all of these different things yeah. put together. Um, and so, you know, it's authentic. It's a it's an mm -hmm. ethnic piece or it's a folk piece or it's a jazz or whatever. And so one of the things that I remember is that he said there could have been a lot more variety in terms of style and, and whatnot. And what mm -hmm. I realized back then and I and I read this and I thought that it was um, assessment because it was it was very different styles and now when i look back on it i go that was a compliment even though i couldn't hear it at the time and it's probably not what he intended to write at the time but now it's a compliment because i go oh so i'm i'm consistent in terms and it represents the story that i that i want to tell in the way that i want to tell it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting yeah yeah so um Tell me, I mean, how many tours have you done at this point, do you think? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't really keep track of it. I mean, you know, my first tour was 2001. Um, then I did uh, 2004, 2005. Okay, so let's say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, mm. nine. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, Taiwan, Czech Republic. Um, I haven't toured Canada, and the the only reason for that is is going back to the conversation that we had about, you know, the 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 spaces that that have grand pianos mm -hmm. versus the ones that that don't. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a group here that sort of that ties together some of these some of these venues, mm -hmm. um, and and they said, you know, we we'd love to put you on the circuit, but not every single space has mm -hmm. has a grand piano. And going and renting a grand piano is is cost prohibitive for them, and we couldn't even get to a conversation about sponsorship or, you know, me bring, bringing a grand piano shell um, before we got to the conversation of, you know, I don't think this is going to work for you. And so that's always that's always interesting is that when when the whole idea of having an instrument or not having an instrument is and stop of a conversation of whether it's going to happen or not. Uh, mm -hmm. regardless of whether they they want to have, you know, they want to entertain the idea of a sponsored piano, right? Or bringing mm -hmm. your own. I feel like there's got to be like a, this is the, a, the a start of an idea for a nonprofit that gets pianos back in, place, in venues and places. Because, yeah. I mean, it's so critical for the, you know, the ongoing musicianship on that instrument is that they be around and that they be maintained by people who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it, it's like, I mean, that's, I think, I, you know, in, in large part why guitars and, you know, other things have gotten so popular because they're just so, they're so big and bulky and even having them in people's homes is, is difficult to do or, yeah. you know, they, they see it as difficult. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's gotta be something there. I mean, I would say the the easiest way to um, get a digital grand 
you know, mm -hmm. they're they're not expensive, uh, depending on which model that you go mm -hmm. with. You know, they're they start somewhere around forty five hundred. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't have to maintain them. All you have to do is, you know, plug them mm -hmm. to the soundboard. And uh, as long as you have somebody that can just take the levels up to, to zero or whatever that that can be. Um, I know I had a conversation with with a venue here about, you know, that they said, we'd love to have you perform, but we don't have a grand piano. I was like, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Or I can have Fatsioli sponsor it. Um, mm -hmm. But there's something about the notion of, you know, the size and the complexity and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff that, that uh, that that sort of escapes it. But mm -hmm. I think I think it's true. You know, having venues, you know, bring that back is is very important. Mm -hmm. And I think they probably also don't realize that there's local music stores that have pianos that would very much uh, like to do a sponsorship or a partnership or something like that with them, so mm -hmm. that the the venue gets the instrument and and the store gets you know sort of foot traffic from parents that are bringing their kids to see this concert yeah yeah absolutely because i i suspect that um if it's preventing you from being at particular venues it's preventing a lot of other people and, yeah. and possibilities so um yeah yeah there's some okay we'll have to keep uh thinking on this um <laughs> <laughs> but uh a couple other questions i had for you is um you are essentially you've been a full-time musician and composer i mean this is basically one and the same uh for your whole life is that correct I, I would say that I've probably been more full time in the in the last ten years. Okay, doing, but for um, a significant amount of time, yeah. Yeah, for definitely for a significant amount of time. I mean, I think I would probably have been full time musician, you know, anywhere else. Um, but with this with this type of music, um, it, it's taken a while to sort of for it to hold and to to get those tours where you can come back and be like, okay, so I'm going to spend the next year writing music and you know, recording it and building that show. Uh, you know, before that I was, I was working in graphic and web design and, you know, working mm -hmm. with clients in, in that aspect. And so it's, it's interesting having, you know, sort of two creative, you know, you've got the music part and then you've got the, uh, what my mom used to, used to call, um, oh, you're just sitting uh, at the computer, you know, putting together pretty pictures and squares and things like that. And I'm like, well, thanks mom. It's a lot more complicated, <laughs> a lot more complicated than that. Um, but, that came out of, uh, you know, out of me sitting down at a Mac and going, okay, I'm doing this first concert. I don't have a huge design, you know, can I do something like this myself and, and learning Photoshop and Illustrator and Adobe, uh, you know, to do that. And then all of a sudden people are going like, hey, can you design my poster? Can you design my website? And then all of a sudden it spiraled into, you know, actually getting clients and, you know, going and studying what the what the latest design trends mm -hmm. um, are or were and so like the the website that you saw uh, mm -hmm. is is one that i built and mm -hmm. uh, it, it's something that that i still love to do these days probably more so for for my uh, than than for clients mostly because i know i know what my brand is i know what the mm -hmm. look and feel is i know that it's succinct you know uh, the album looks the same way as the sheet music book as the tour poster mm -hmm. as xyz the the branding aspect is is hugely important you know these mm -hmm. days mm -hmm. be consistent from one platform to the other so that when when people see your music on apple music or they they see it on youtube or they see it on your website or facebook or instagram and all that sort of stuff it has to be the same picture the same font mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. same type of thing so that it is that succinct uh, mm -hmm. paintbrush 
Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, yeah. it, that has been, that has been a lot of fun too. Yeah. That makes so much sense because your website is very amazing and very much resembles exactly what you hear. And, uh, you know, I, I was Not wondering so about that. Not what you see though. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, when you see in, on stage, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's very well done. Okay. Uh, and I was, I was curious about that. I was thinking, wow, he must have an amazing team, but, uh, all, or, <laughs> or you just have a background in this and, and <laughs> yeah, which makes it's so much easier and and I really encourage any musicians that we work with to do this I mean to learn the the website building as well because especially with um you know I mean we're so reliant on on you know web everything mm-hmm. uh if the website is out of your control and you need I mean you need to update that so regularly yeah. um it's if it's not in your control it's just uh, it's it's kind of a disaster and it's, it's it's going to be so much more time consuming to work with someone else and, and, um, financially mm-hmm. <laughs> consuming, uh, than if you just learn how to do it yourself. Um, yeah. I, I would say the, the, the other version of that, that I think would be very beneficial is, you know, having somebody help you set it up or set it up for you and then teach you how to yes. maintain it. Yeah. And so then, because for a lot of people, you know, the, the technical aspect of once once they see it and once it's there it's easy to update right it's easy to pull in stuff mm-hmm. and and so much these days is can be pulled in you know you have gigs and you put it into your google calendar all of a sudden it's pinged onto your website and that you know that feeds into facebook mm-hmm. and and uh you know this type of thing so there there's a lot of ways to do that in such a way so that you help the artist get that set up you teach them and show them and then they know that they have somebody sort of on speed dial that can help them if there's something bigger that needs to be done, but they have enough of the knowledge to maintain it. Whereas I know that I've seen people that go, I don't even know how to begin with this, let alone how to maintain it. So if you if you take away the, mm-hmm. I'll show you how to begin with it, I'll show you how that's done as I do it, and then it's easier to maintain. It, it, it hugely changes, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the aspect of, um, of, uh, of what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah, great suggestions there. Uh, and since you are uh, an experienced graphic designer, do you have any uh, graphic design hacks for any musicians who might be looking to uh, do more with that? Or like, what what are the websites and programs that you use for your own personal? Uh, oh, um, hacks. I don't know if there's any hacks. I mean, I use the you know I use the Adobe Creative Suite. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the biggest thing that I would say is is hugely important in anything that is done. Um, make sure that the material is solid from from the ground up. So get, you know, make sure that they're great headshots. Make sure that it's a photographer that knows uh, what they're doing. Selfies don't really work unless that is unless that is specifically the style of you know um, the brand. And I and I've seen people that that do the selfies, and that is how it's represented through everything though but it's also done artistically in such a way so that it's yes it's a selfie but it's lit designed a certain way so that it has that look to it right um make sure the material is solid get a great photo um get a polished write-up um make sure that it's you know third person point of view uh as opposed to i did this and i did that um 
I don't know that there's very many hacks. I mean, for for websites, you know, I use Squarespace because mm-hmm. it it has a lot of features built into it, and you can you can scale up. You can start small, and then when you want to move into e-commerce, the platform is right there. To you know, uh, doing newsletters out to fans, the platform is it's all right within that, and so you can go up into in into different things. You can you can pull in stuff from. Uh, bands in town you can you know pull stuff in from facebook or Mm -hmm. vice versa you know you can have uh, stuff that you publish in e-commerce directly published into into facebook so that when people see a new product that you have they they just click on one thing that takes you back to your website the the biggest thing that anything that you do or link anywhere always link it back to your website so if, for example, mm-hmm. you want somebody to be listening to this podcast and you want them to be listening to it on uh, Spotify, from the Facebook, it goes back to your website that links then to Spotify. People are going through your website, the more they're likely to go, oh, I want to see what the other episode was about. And they're clicking on merch, then they're looking at events and all that type of thing. Whereas if you go from Facebook to Spotify, you know, they'll listen to the podcast and then all of a sudden they get caught in something in Spotify world, right? As opposed to um, perusing through through the website. So um, even when even when I've done, you know, concerts um, and it's been with venues, I'll always put, you know, martinmayerinconcert.com or martinmayermusic.com slash as the link so that it goes to the website first and then you go to, you mm-hmm. know, the... Um, mm-hmm. the the ticket venue, whatever that might be, whether mm-hmm. it's Ticketmaster or the or the venue directly. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. if that's a hack as much as a uh... advice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that works too. Yeah. yeah, we will take it however it comes. Uh, so you are um, basically your own publishing house, your own um, agency. You know, you do everything yourself, as I recall from talking with you in the past. Um, and you know, first of all, um, why do you prefer to do it that way? And secondly, if, uh, if you don't mind asking, like, um, give, do you have, um, any time management strategies <laughs> for mm-hmm. those people who are looking to do the same or wish to keep it the same way for them? Yeah. So um, the, the, the one thing that I do need to say is that um, despite the fact that there's a lot of things that I do myself, um, I am surrounded by a really great team of, mm-hmm. you know, publicists, sync licensing agents, sure. and entertainment lawyer and, you know, performance agents um, in overseas market and that type of thing. Sure. The, the, the reason that, you know, I'm my own record company and publishing company is because 100% of the rights stay with me. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody says, I want to license for a spot on Good Morning America, they don't have to deal with Sony, they don't have to deal with an A&R rep, they don't have to deal with, you know, three or four people. They come to one source and I go, great, you know, here's the here's the track. Um, Jeff, my entertainment lawyer, will send you the contract. Uh, you know, when, when I go on tour, um, I get to decide which album is the one that we sell as part of merchandise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I get to decide when... When this new album comes out, when the new book that goes along with it comes comes out, there's a lot more control. Um, and for for this type of music, I think that's um, I think that's hugely important because mm-hmm. there aren't you know like Wyndham Hill Records 
was huge in the 80s and the 90s in, in terms of this type of music. Um, but then they got bought out. And um, Will Ackerman, who is the, the general the label is, is still doing his own music, but he's not working with artists the same way like he did before. And so, you know, these days with with the way of releasing music, you know, through um, through Apple Music, iTunes, you know, YouTube Music, Spotify, and all that sort of stuff, there's so many more options for artists to do that directly. They don't need the label support like they like they used to. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of money um, for before the artist starts seeing some of that uh, money back uh, to them. And then there's sometimes where, where things happen with a label where, you know, it, it doesn't work out for whatever reason. And the artist has music trapped, you know, somewhere else. Um, the Taylor's mind, you know, she had her music bought by uh, Scooter Braun, who then went and sold it to somebody else. And she was left out of two scenarios where she could have bought the masters to her songs. Mm -hmm. and decided to go and re-record them herself. If you're your own artist and you're your own publisher, that doesn't happen unless you're in business with somebody who, you know, doesn't see things the way that you do mm -hmm. happens. So for, for me, it's just that's how it started. I haven't found any sort of a fit anywhere at this point um, where, where my music could work, um, where people have said, hey, we'd love to take this on. Um, and at the same time, it, it needs to work mm -hmm. in order for me to even consider that right mm -hmm. for, for time management. Um, I would say the, the biggest thing is yes, structure your day in such a way where you, you're focusing on both words of the word music business. You focus on the music and the business side of it. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel comfortable with the business side of it, then surround yourself with a team that mm -hmm. does, or one person that does who is a manager. Um, most of the time, people need an agent far more than they need a manager, right? Mm. Um, the the manager will, will help you get to certain places, but it's the agent that will get you the gig. Um, you don't need a publicist until you get, you know, the gigs and you need the agent to get the gigs. Then you have the publicist that helps you promote the stuff and all that sort of stuff. The manager will help you, uh, depending on what what style they are they will help you sometimes select the song or um you know find producers to work with in terms of recording your music but that's all things that you can do now mm -hmm. there's so much that has changed since when mm -hmm. um back in the olden days <laughs> um it was you know you recorded the cd and uh, then it had to go out to all of these you know uh, stores and you were paying the distributor a certain portion, uh, getting a portion of that. So, for example, uh, Virgin Records, you know, at a time was carrying my CDs and they were selling them for, for $24. So we're talking about, you know, back in 2000. $24 is, is what it's being sold at. They pay the distributor 12 bucks, pays me six. Mm -hmm. So I get $6 of a $24 album. Right mm -hmm. now, um, if we fast forward 10 years, then you're buying stuff on the iTunes store. So it's $10 and I'm putting that out, mm -hmm. you know, under my company, Martin Mayer Music Inc. Um, Apple gives me $8.99 of that. $8.99 of that is mine, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to having to, uh, to mm -hmm. share it with anybody else. Then we fast forward another 10 years. Well, now it's $9.99 a month for however much music that you want to listen to. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And now we're getting, you know, smaller streams where it's 0 0.0037, mm -hmm. as is the case with our friends over at Spotify, <laughs> a $5 billion company, emphasis on yeah. B, right? Where these, uh, where, where people are getting huge amounts of streams and, mm -hmm. and it's not paying anything. I mean, I had a, I had a royalty check not that long ago where it was uh, 2.1 million streams of a song that netted me $7,900. Wow. And you look at that and go, I'm sorry, what? You know, there's, there's a reason that so many of us, um, you know, when we go back to talking about the pandemic, mm -hmm. that there's a reason that so many of us have, have been struggling through it um because touring has been the thing where you go and make money mm -hmm. you know you make money on the show you make money on cd sales you make money on merchandise sales mm -hmm. and the fact that even though somebody might not have a cd player at home anymore they still want that mm -hmm. that lovely disc that you know you personalized um for them that doesn't exist in the 999 for everything mm -hmm. that you want mm -hmm. uh to listen to and I know somebody said to me, well, how is, how is the, and, and this is an interesting thing. And, um, I'm, I'm really interested to see what somebody said to me the other day, well, how is that different in the music industry as opposed to paying, you know, 1199 for what all you want that you want to watch on Netflix. And I said, well, here's the difference. Netflix will either go and create the content. They will go and pay to have that content created, or they will license it. Right. Mm -hmm. So they've got parks and recreation that they've licensed from NBC. Well, they're paying NBC a license fee for that. Mm -hmm. Or they have Bridgerton, which they've oh, created. Absolutely. Somebody mm -hmm. has said to them, this is great. Here's the money for that. It's a Netflix series. And so Netflix is either paying to have that created or they're paying to license that. Spotify isn't paying to license it. Apple Music is not paying to create it. Mm -hmm. You're paying $39 to TuneCore or any of the other aggregators to release your music. And you're getting uh, pennies on the pennies back um, from, from the listening of that. Yeah, that's interesting that someone would... Uh bring that question up. I haven't heard it put that way, but they are completely different <laughs> and they could not be more different yeah. in their, their, their business models. So, or at least how they treat the, you know, the artists involved. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Thank you for explaining that for the people listening because, uh, yeah, they, they can, they are completely apples and oranges. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, some, somebody looks at that and, and they, they see it from the perspective of it's nine ninety nine. Right. I can listen to everything that I want and here it's 11 99 and I can, I can watch whatever right. I want. Well, at, at the point that, yeah. you know, those streaming platform, you know, they, they look at it simply as, Nine ninety nine a month mm -hmm. to listen to all the music that you want, and eleven ninety nine a month for all the movies and TV that you want to watch. But if and when there was ever any sort of an indication that those streaming platforms were heading towards the pennies on the pennies that were getting paid, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the people at Netflix and and mm -hmm. Crave and HBO Max would be going like, "Wait a minute, this isn't this isn't the model mm -hmm. that we signed up for." And yet there are still musicians that, uh, you know, that are happily adding their music to Spotify mm -hmm. and and paying into that infrastructure of five, uh, five billion dollars. Um, 
And I think that's, I think that might be because, um, it's a place where people can find musicians and, uh, Spotify curated playlists can make or break some people's careers in some cases, you know, the, um, unexpected that can be very possible for a lot of artists, uh, can, can be really helpful. And, um, I don't know. And, uh, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, a lot of booking agencies just use a lot, you know, Spotify, especially, but also, also Apple music and other, other places for just, you know, their data on, um, artists following. So, um, it's like, they have to be on there, um, in, in some ways. So, um, those are kind of my own perspectives and, um, thoughts on that, but, um, yeah, why why people get on there in the first place? But there is definitely some that that um, have resisted, and and I like yourself, and you know, I really I can appreciate that, and and I you know, good for you for keeping your your work to yourself and and making the money f- for yourself, and um, yeah, and well, and, and, and your music is on Apple, right? So yeah, it it is on it is on Apple Music and um and YouTube and Amazon and mm-hmm. any of those other ones, Pandora and uh, you know title for for me, I just don't subscribe to the uh, to the the policy or the the idea that you know a company that is worth five billion dollars mm-hmm. is you know sending pennies back on on the dollar of 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 what is created. Um, the the other aspect of it is that there are places in the world where people are listening on other platforms, you know, QQ Music and Tencent and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and, and these types of platforms in, in Asia where, where Spotify and Apple Music don't have that, you know, primary mm-hmm. following. And and I know that our industry is changing and has changed and continues to on a, on a daily basis. I mean, I had a conversation with somebody in Germany that said, we wouldn't consider working with you because your music isn't on Spotify. And I went, oh, well, that's interesting. And I said, out of curiosity, why is that? You can find me on any of the other platforms mm. and you can, you can, you know, get music from me directly. They didn't have a specific answer to that. And I thought it was interesting having a conversation with a record label where they said, you know, that they wouldn't consider somebody that isn't on Spotify when what we're talking about is a future release as opposed to previous catalog material. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's people that look at that, uh, I think a little too closely, right. If there's oh, people yeah. that are, that are booking specifically based on whether you have mm-hmm. a thousand followers or a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, that has nothing to do at all with the music. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's all it should be about, right? If you're booking somebody it into should. hall, it's whether can you play, can you sing, can you bring the audience? Right. Well, it's it's as much as uh, I can play and I can bring the show as much as you as the concert promoter or you as the tour promoter are responsible for bringing the mm-hmm. audience, right? I bring the show, you bring the audience. And if you're relying on the artist to bring both, then what is the point of having a concert promoter or tour mm-hmm. promoter in the first place? The artist just might as well do it themselves. Right, right. right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's why uh, a lot of artists consider it a necessary evil, you know, being on Spotify because, uh, because yes, that is, um, it's available. It's data that's available, easily available. And so that's what, yeah, a lot of booking agents are using. Um, and rely on because they, that is how they get their guarantee. Theoretically, that's, that's what they believe. But, 
Um, and the question has to be asked, um, why aren't they looking at website traffic? Why aren't they looking at the number of hits a website has or the amount of, you know, downloads that a website has, has gotten to an e-commerce platform? What's your newsletter fan base look like? Because uh, um, that's harder to find as opposed to Spotify. It's right there. They're on there already. You know, it's mm -hmm. anything that takes extra time on their part. You know, it's that is, I'm sure, the answer. Um, that's that's my guess. But um, we could go on and on. <laughs> and yeah. I and yeah, and this, this is just based on some friends. You know, we don't really do this ourselves, but based on the conversations I've had with friends who do use this uh, system and, you know, do this with their their act, um, their booking. So um, well, if, if if those people happen to be listening to the to this podcast, <laughs> I would say, please, 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 I implore you to listen to the music and go to these artists' websites and listen to what they do and what they've done and all that, because you can't base somebody simply on what they can do just on, you know, one platform. There's so much more to, to the story of who, who we are as musicians, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just some number on, you know, one streaming platform. That is, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I was just thinking like, if there was another way to show, to easily show data, like, you know, right at, on the side of your website, you know, I, I don't know if that, but that's kind of getting ridiculous. You shouldn't really have to do that, but like, you know, um, web traffic, you know, this year and, you know, um, listened this year on Apple music or something where it's just super easily available. That could be a workaround, um, because I mean, the promoters the, and booking, booking agents, like they go to. They're, you know, artist websites and Spotify and sometimes Instagram. And, you know, that's, those are the big ones. And if they have to go further than that, then it's taking too much time. <laughs> so, um, you know, but if you have it right there where it's easily available, all of the information they could want from those places, um, that, that could be a workaround. So, but anyways, um, I have a couple of other questions I'd like to ask you. Is it okay if we go sure. just a little longer? Okay. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> And then you can you can you can splice it and put it together as as much or as little. No, as this is great. <laughs> this is wonderful. I um, and thank you for your very uh, honest feedback and, and answers here. And I think a lot of people will agree with you and and support what you do. Actually, who listen to this. Um, so uh, you know, I always like to ask on here, and you've you've addressed a few things that might fall into this category. But I always like to ask, what, um, especially from the business perspective, what is the greatest lesson that you have learned along the way as a musician? Oh, just one. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's tough to narrow down. Um, I would say the the biggest one that um, that I've learned or at least the, the top two, the, the first one that comes to mind is, is going back to that email that I received from the Chinese Performing Arts Agency. I could have so easily dismissed that as just another piece of spam, right? I could have easily just said, eh, I'm not interested. This is too much work, right? Or um, for whatever reason, it, it doesn't sit right. And the minute that that goes and goes out the door, you have no idea what you have uh, let go or thrown away or mm -hmm. haven't looked at or haven't taken to the point of look at this is it worth doing um, explore it to the point where you go mm, this isn't going to work for me right mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so that's one thing is that anytime that there's an opportunity that comes your way, be prepared to say yes, find mm -hmm. yourself ready at any moment. Um, the, the interesting story with, with, uh, with that one is when I was, when I was getting my career ready, I was listening to a lot of John Tesh music and following his PBS specials and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, many people might know him from as the guy from Entertainment Tonight or mm -hmm. these days he hosts his own radio show. But I was listening to his music and was sort of following what the what the formula was to success and mm -hmm. and, and how that translates. Um, fast forward to 2019, I went and got to see a, a show of his in Seattle and um, afterwards, I had a I had a chance to chat with him and you know thank him for really helping to inspire my career and that I had recently come back from a from a tour in China and and he said to me, you know if I had known that you were here I would have asked you to play for me and I remember just off the top of my head thinking well the piano's right there I don't mind going up on stage and playing for you now mm -hmm. and it, the minute that it came out of my mouth immediately immediately in my head I went. What are you doing? You you want to play for the guy who you know who has been your idol this entire time? How do you know you're not going to mess up? How do you blah 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 mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that whole thing of be fat ready because if he you know he could he would have said to me I wish you could have played for me and I, you know well I don't feel well today or I didn't practice or anything like that. Um, that then changes the whole dynamic of what what happened. So we connected, you know, I played some of his tunes, I played some of mine, we connected over coffee, the next day, he gave me his number to keep in touch with and, you know, has been very generous with his time mm -hmm. and support in terms of um, the things that, that he can offer. Um, and there, there have been a couple things that have come out of that or the people that I've been introduced to, or the fact that I can say, hey, I have this new album, I'm thinking of releasing it, for this you know does this still make sense in today's world and getting true and honest feedback from somebody who's been in the business for over 40 years and has done the ins and outs of mm -hmm. music television broadcast radio you know all this sort of stuff um so that whole idea of be found ready you know mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. somebody who's an orchestrator goes to a john williams concert and you know they're inspired by him and he says orchestra's here you know let's conduct for me or show me what you do or something like that, mm -hmm. right? The the whole idea of be found ready because you never know when that knock on the door is going to be something that that changes your life. Mm -hmm. The the other one for for me since the beginning has always been I focus on the art first. And if there's finance and money that comes along with it, great. But the biggest thing that I found is that if I go and do something or I look at something and I go, I need to make some money this month, which we all do. I'm going to go and find this. If if that is my approach from the gate out, it doesn't work the same way. And I don't take it in artistically the same way. And I don't perform the same way mm -hmm. because I'm looking mm -hmm. at it from the perspective of the finance first as opposed to the art. And for mm -hmm. whatever reason, the way that I've been wired since I started looking at it that, that way, I can't get from the finance point to the artistic side despite what I do. And, and I've done this before and, and, you know, sometimes I will just go through with it. And I, at the end I go, why didn't this feel the same way? And it's because mm -hmm. I put the money first instead of the art. And sometimes people can sense that. Um, I'm inherently a highly sensitive person, highly mm -hmm. functioning, sensitive person mm -hmm. in terms of my art, in terms of how I work. Um, 
that probably a lot of the stuff that I take more seriously or that I take more personally, other people will go like, doesn't matter to me. And and that's fine because everybody is built differently. But be found ready. Um, focus on the art first because that will allow you to get the other stuff to fall in line mm -hmm. um, by itself. You know, with, with that first concert, I didn't go seek out to do an international tour somewhere else, but I put my best art out there and that's what found me. Mm -hmm. um, the other one that I've always um, relied on with myself is trust your gut. Mm -hmm. If something doesn't feel right or there's something that isn't, um, something doesn't seem genuine or something feels off. For example, I had a conversation with uh, a company out of Europe last year this time and they said we want to do a sub-publishing agreement with you to represent your music and i said great sub-publishing for europe only because i want to make sure that i control the north american market and i still control the asian market and they said yeah that's not a problem then you get the paperwork and you you look at it and you start reading blah 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 and all this all of a sudden there it is uh, sub-publishing agreement for all territories except for Canada. And I went, no, no, that's not what we talked about. Hmm. And that's not also what, like, how is it sub-publishing if it's all territories except, except for Canada? Right, right. And so I, I talked to my lawyer about it and, and he said, well, it is sub-publishing sub because if it was publishing in total, they would want Canada as part of it. And I said, uh, okay, that's a bit of a stretch. And he's like, yeah, but legally, and there it goes back to something that, you know, legally, this is considered sub-publishing because they're not getting all of the territories. <laughs> and so for me, I looked at that and I went, this isn't a sub-publishing deal. This is a publishing deal that they're trying to pull off a sub-publishing because they don't get one territory. And he said, yep, that's exactly what it is. And so I went back and I said, this isn't what we talked about. This isn't what we agreed to. Mm -hmm. Um, this, this doesn't work for me. Um, there are a lot of things out there where people will promise you the moon that can't even deliver the continent. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of places where you can go and put your money and it just falls into somewhere and, and it doesn't, uh, go anywhere. I believe in the principle of never bad mouthing businesses because mm -hmm. businesses are there to do what they do. But, you know, if, if there's something that seems too good to be true, chances are it likely is. So trust mm. your gut. And if you're not sure, ask a lawyer. <laughs> yes. Very sage advice. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, everything you just said. And, and thank you for, uh, you know, your, your take on that. Um, very well said. Uh, is, Sorry, one thing that I was just going to add, um, yeah. lawyers are great and they're fantastic and I love them. But if, you know, if there's anybody that ever wants to ask me a question or they're not sure about something, you know, please feel free to reach out to me through my social media or through my website, martinmayermusic.com. I'm always happy to get email from, from musicians or artists. Um, I certainly have been very appreciative of the people that have taken the time to listen to me and allow me to ask questions. And so if there's, you know, anybody that, uh, that is listening that wants to ask a question now or later, you know, find me on, on social media or through my website and I'd be happy to write back. Yeah. Thank you so much for that offer. That's wonderful. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, 
Is there anything, uh, I'm going to get to your, uh, your music in a moment, but is there anything that we didn't discuss here today that you might like to mention uh, a topic that we didn't cover? Um, hmm. There's, there's so many things that we talked about and, and I, I really like the fact that, you know, we, we've talked about so many things and so many different aspects of, of the industry because the, mm -hmm. the industry is, you know, is ever changing and as we're sort of finding our way out of this pandemic question mark you know um so many things have changed and so many mm -hmm. things will change um i don't know that that i have anything that um that uh that comes to mind um it's okay we can still circle back if you if you think of it so sure um, yeah yeah, yeah. But I was uh, going to ask you then about your piece called Whistler. Can you mm -hmm. tell me about it, uh, which we'll sure. play at the end of this interview? Yeah, so Whistler was written around the time that uh, that we hosted the 2010 Olympic Games here. Um, mm -hmm. I've always been a fan of the Olympic Games mm -hmm. ever since, uh, you know, I've heard the, the John Williams um you know the pieces that that were always broadcast at the beginning of 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 the NBC coverage and I always loved how you know NBC has always made the 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 places that that we go to for these events you know you've got the 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 beautiful opening shots you know that are now filmed with drones before it was with helicopter shots and all that sort of stuff it always looks like this beautiful tourism video of you know the uh, the the places and spaces that that we go to and i had never um, had a chance to experience the games before. And then when they came to Vancouver in 2010, um, I remember being downtown when, uh, you know, when um, some, of the, some of the big events happened and, uh, you know, you go to the celebration afterwards and um, there's there's something about that energy mm -hmm. of people being united by by support and people being united by by art and humanity that, I hadn't experienced before. And so for, for me, Whistler was written in a way to, to represent the energy of what I experienced during those games. Um, what I know Whistler itself as, as the place to be that I love to go and, uh, and the, this sort of, um, you know, there's that bombastic melody that, that goes along mm -hmm. as, as the main driving theme, but then you've got some of the, some of the smaller sections that, that sort of take you into you know, uh, that take you from the Olympic Games into the, the nature aspect of it. And then you, you know, you're canoeing across this beautiful lake and you see, you know, a bear in, in the background with its, with its two cubs and, and, and that type of thing were just trying to really capture the, um, you know, as a tribute to the Olympic Games and as a tribute to the place that, that I love to go is, is what that piece is really about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. And it it is a really fun, fun, um, you know, it, portrayal of, you know, a sampling of, of everything else that you do. Um, and where can we find out more information on, on you and what you do? You can find me at martinmayermusic.com. Mm -hmm. I'm at uh, I am Martin Mayer on Facebook and Instagram and Martin Mayer Music on YouTube. Great. And uh, um, any final Parting words. Uh, the the other one that comes to mind is uh, sheet music. Uh, sheet music direct. Oh, right, right. Sheet music plus. Uh, and uh, if you want to support me directly, you can buy any of my music and uh, sheet music through my website martinmayermusic.com. I am of course also on on Apple Music, Amazon, uh, mm -hmm. iTunes still exists, so you can still <laughs> buy 
you know, music from there. Um, but just as I said before, you know, if there's any artists or people that are listening that want to ask uh, a musician such as myself a question, you know, look me up at martinmayermusic.com, send me a message through there, through my website or through my social media. Great. Well, thank you so much, Martin, for taking the time today to talk with me. And Thank you so much for having uh, yeah. me. It's been fun. Yeah, very fun.
Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.